Hello, everyone. I hope you're doing well and staying safe and healthy during this difficult time. I'm just going to jump into this because I'm super excited about starting this podcast. My name is Ragni Kathur. I am the creator of Honesty Hour as well as one of the hosts. Our other host, Joanna, can't be here today, unfortunately. She will be here next time and you'll learn more about her, her interests, her passion for mental health, as well as her role in this initiative. But uh, for today, you got me. I'm just going to start off with an introduction and kind of give you a glimpse of what our podcast is going to be like. And then finally, we have a guest, which is great for our first podcast. We're going to kind of engage in an in-depth conversation about mental health. Uh, she's a psychology professor at USC. Should be very interesting. So stay tuned. But um, before we get into any of the meat of this podcast, I think we should address things that you guys probably have questions about. Like, why is the visual quality terrible? Why does she look like she's a middle schooler messing with photo booth? Or why is the audio not so great? It's because we're using Zoom for our podcast right now. This wasn't the initial plan. We were going to rent equipment from USC as well as studio space. But as COVID-19 and the pandemic just got so terrible, it was best for all of us to just go home and do uh, online classes. So we kind of put a halt to the podcast, but then I don't know, it just didn't seem right to not go forward with it. So we figured out a way that we could do that. And that's through Zoom. We want to use a platform we were comfortable with, which we were because we used it for classes. And then we also wanted to use a platform other people knew about. So professionals that we were going to interview. And I think Zoom is a pretty widely known uh, software. So that worked out perfectly. And while there are some downsides in terms of quality, we're actually able to provide you guys with something we weren't going to before, which is a visual. We were just going to provide you with audio for this podcast, but now you can actually see us, get to know us better, see our emotions, see how we interact with the guests and how they interact with us. It just kind of becomes more personal. That's really a benefit for using Zoom right now. So let's get into the introduction. Um, as I said, my name is Rodney Kathur. I am a senior at the University of Southern California. I'm majoring in business administration and concentrating in marketing and have a minor in applied analytics. Ooh, so that's like the academic part. Um, I took a couple psychology courses throughout college, but it was always an underlying interest for me. Um, specifically, it did help me figure out where I want to go in business, which is marketing, because that's consumer behavior based and consumer psychology based. So it really gave me a path in my professional pursuits. Then on top of that, Psychology also helped me find my number one passion, which I will talk about and discuss further in these podcasts, but finding new and creative ways to maintain mental health as well as helping others maintain their mental health. Yeah. And especially during this time where it's very difficult with COVID, with police brutality, with the upcoming election, the way we communicate has shifted drastically. We are social beings, human beings. We love to interact. We love to engage. We love to converse. So having that kind of taken away from us and only being able to do that through technology really has an impact on people's mental health, specifically people like students, as well as people entering the workforce. The aim of this podcast is to show those that fall into this category that their mental health is as important as other things that they prioritize, such as like your physical health, 
um, your goal to get an A on your next test or um, upward mobility at work. So it's very important because mental health affects all of these things. It's the base of a lot of these different parts of your life. So by interviewing different people around the USC area, such as students, alumni, faculty, professors, as well as um, mental health uh, coordinators and mental health resources, as well as social impact organizations and local LA counselors, we hope that we can provide you with an honest answer to a lot of your questions about mental health, as well as kind of giving you some sort of guidance about how to enter this workforce during COVID and post-COVID. It's a very difficult time, but we're going to have so many different professionals from different areas come and speak to uh, you guys on this podcast about what they've gone through, their path, as well as discussing how mental health has been a part of their profession. So overall, Honesty Hour is here to tell you that you are not alone. With that being said, while this is focused primarily around the USC area, we hope that we can impact people outside of this from different institutions, different universities, uh, different states, different ages. Um, So if you have suggestions, please give them to us. I will definitely go over where you can give us suggestions towards the end of this podcast, but this podcast is for our audience and we want to provide them with content that they want to hear about mental health as well as um, professional development. So yeah, so let's um, kind of start taking a dive into this podcast. Uh, I think how we're going to start these off is the hosts are kind of going to discuss how they're doing. We're going to see how, where our headspace is right now, where um, our mindset is, how we've been dealing with the week and different coping mechanisms we've been using. And then after that, that could fruition into the rest of the podcast topic, but it also could just serve as a component to introducing our speaker. Um, the speaker will come in and they will talk about their career, the paths of their career, give us some professional advice, and then we'll kind of go into topics about mental health within um, that professional world, as well as how they have observed mental health in their personal lives. So for myself today, I don't know if you can tell, I'm super anxious. Um, I've never been a part of a podcast before. This is my first time ever hosting a podcast, kind of getting used to hearing my voice. And now I'm visually having to see myself because we added this component. So definitely makes me pretty anxious, but I really do want to provide you guys with some interesting content that is helpful. So that's kind of what's pushing me forward through this anxiety. Um, and then I guess the last thing I would say, job insecurity is a really big thing that's been weighing on me pretty heavily. It's right now, the job market is just so hard to tap into, especially for new graduates and seniors like myself. So that's been weighing heavy on me. So I just kind of have to constantly remind myself that I'm not alone in this. This is a pandemic and we're going to get through this. So now moving on, I'm excited to invite our first guest that we are having on the podcast. She's currently a psychology professor at the University of Southern California. She got her BA at NYU in psychology and she got her PhD at USC. Uh, She has taught some really cool classes. Um, A couple of them were psychological science and society, as well as um, frontal lobe from function to philosophy. Um, And then a few of the classes that she's currently teaching are introduction to psych, as well as abnormal psychology. 
So please welcome Professor Leslie Bernston. Hey there. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm good. Um, so finally, nice to meet you. Uh, thank you also for being a part of this uh, podcast too. For sure, thanks for having me. So how are you doing today? I kind of just want to start off by like, checking in. I'm good. I'm good. So the analogy I always give, cause like I never would have thought this, like when I was a college student, mm-hmm. but like in college, we always talk about like finals week and how bad finals week is. And like, that is the billboard yeah. of like stress, right? I like to describe the end of the semester and the beginning of the semester for faculty members as wor- not worse, but like as much to do as any finals week that I've ever had in college combined. So that's kind of like where I am. Um, so like very, very busy, but good. Especially now though, too, because since you're having to come right. into online, like now fully, I, that must be like a big transition. Was Is it like, how has that been going for you? Has like difficult? Okay. Do you like really miss being in person? So yeah, I, I mean, I do miss being in person, but the way that I describe it to my students, and you kind of said this before when we were talking, is like, this is the best way to ensure we keep everyone safe. I tell my students, this is the best way we ensure that we're not playing the Hunger Games with everyone's health. So here we are, and this is what we're going to do. And I just try to do everything in my power to make it as good of a class, if not better, than it would have been in person. Are there any things that you've been doing trying to make it more interactive? Well, yeah. So I can, yeah, I can tell you just how I'm organizing my classes. So I'm using what's called a flipped classroom format, which is something that some people will use under normal precedented circumstances and precedented times, but seems to work good for unprecedented times as well. Um, so basically what that means is I record lecture videos all ahead of time for my students and then I give them to them and say you can watch these on your own time whenever you want because I know people are all around the world you've got other stuff to do yeah. so watch them on your own time and then during our regularly scheduled like class sessions I'll be available to answer any questions you have drop in discuss do whatever you want um, but that kind of structure um, so like before we jump in is there anything else you'd like to add about yourself that I didn't mention in your like introduction or anything like that Not that I can think of at the moment. I'm sure I'll work things into my answers, but no, you did a good job. Okay, great. Um, So I guess to get started, so when I was like doing my research on you as a professor, I've taken like Psych 100, but I haven't, I didn't take it with you or anything like that. So I wanted to do my research. I saw on your website that it states that you have like two fundamental principles for teaching. I'm so impressed by this research that people do and also horrified. Okay, sorry, keep going. (laughs) So says the fundamentals is science is for everyone. And then the second one says social science truly has the power to make the world a better place. So could you explain that and like also how you came to that approach when you like through your career? And oh, yeah. So I can just go if I can redirect myself to better answer your question. You let me know at any time. Okay. Um, but I'll start with the first one. So science is for everyone. I feel like the a fairly self-explanatory statement. Yeah. Science should be for anyone. Anyone should be able to do science. But in my experience, both as a student and now as a professional educator, I've realized, so I have, um, I have what I call that I do when I teach my classes. I have my bad teacher speeches that I give where I just go off on like what our teachers have done in the past. And mm-hmm. looking back as a professional educator, I'm like, how was that acceptable? Like, why would you do that? Yeah. Um, and one of the things that keeps coming up over and over and over again is students saying that their teachers have told them that they're not a science person. That expression is used all the time. I'm not a science person. I'm not a math person. You'll never be able to be good at science, those kinds of things, right? Um, So doing everything in my power to make sure that I 
again, to whatever extent I am able to undo whatever they might have been told in the past um, with respect to their ability to succeed at science, that kind of thing. Um, On the first day of every class that I teach, I do a little exercise and I'll tell you about it. So um, in developmental psychology, developmental psychologists who study children do something that is called the draw a scientist test, which is exactly what it sounds like. They ask small children, three, four, five years old, you can do it at any age, but they do it with pretty young children. And they'll ask them, okay, draw a picture of a scientist. And simple as that. And what they find time and time again is well before these children fully understand what science is, they've got a real clear idea of what a scientist looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll let you imagine, we'll play this game. Think back to the classes that you took in middle school, high school. Think of the famous scientists you learned about. Mm -hmm. Describe them to me. What did they look like? I would say like, Having the goggles on, that would be like the classic, like the lab coat. Um, the hair. The hair, yes. <laughs> Definitely. The whole, the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and those images that we have in our head can very much impact our beliefs in terms of who we think are able to be scientists and mm-hmm. do science. Um, so I do that every first day of class, both to make sure that my students are aware that science is for everyone, including them, number mm-hmm. one, um, and number two, to also kind of subtextually make it very clear that I do not look like the scientists that they would have learned about in school, but yeah. I'm your science professor and we're going to learn some science yeah. um, to make that, to make that very, very clear. I definitely wanted to hear about like the way you teach and the way you communicate with your students. So that's great. Um, but I guess like the second point was social science truly can pow- um, has the power to make the world a better place. So I guess yeah. like going into that. Yeah. So I mean, this is going to be like me preaching to the choir more than anything, but like, like why, like why, like it just blows my mind that people can choose to teach their classes, any, any class, much less psychology where you don't, where like you aren't giving people tips to live their best life based on what we know from the scientific research, that you're not giving people tips for how to help other people, how to promote social justice, all of these things, Mm -hmm. which there's tons of scientific evidence for how we can do these things in our everyday life. And people just don't do it. And it blows my mind that people don't do it. Um, So one of the funniest things that I hear other people say um, that I think you just kind of hinted at is the idea that by virtue of having an advanced degree in psychology, that that comes with social skills, that that comes with interpersonal Mm -hmm. degrees, et cetera. It does not. It does not necessarily. Um, So that's, that's, you can be very good in that field, but maybe it's just like you don't put into practice those things that you are learning about. And I mean, when you get a PhD in psychology, it is a research degree. You have to do research and a dissertation to get the degree mm-hmm. just because, and this is, ooh, don't get me started on this, just because you are a good researcher does not necessarily make you a good teacher or a good person. Um, and I feel like when people, because I mean, psychology is the study of people, right? So like, and, and our minds and our brains. So I feel mm-hmm. like out of the world, people have this idea that if you're a psychologist, it comes with all of these things. Yeah. No, if you have a PhD in psychology, all it means is you are a qualified researcher at whatever level was required for you to get the degree. Anything above that is anything above that. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's some, that's really good insight. I guess I didn't think about it in that sort of sense. We kind of talked about this a little bit, but um, we sent like a form and like asked you some questions. So uh, one of the questions we kind of talked to you about was like the path that you took and how you got to where you are today. 
um, if you could summarize that and then state like any shifts you've kind of seen in academia like that have changed since you, I don't know when you also got your PhD. So 2018. So if you've seen any shifts in the way that processes and I'm wondering if there's been different ways that, um, that has changed over the years or, um, if it's like been consistent. Gotcha. Okay. So I'll do my best. So I went to NYU, New York, New York university for undergrad. Um, and I was originally a psych and pre-med double major. I took organic chemistry and was like, no more. So Every time I, um, in all of my classes, the day that I give back their first exam grades, I tell them this story because I think it's important because the way, okay, so I'm going way off topic, but I promise this is relevant. So the way and related to mental health, the way that I hear people talk about grades and talk about success and talk about being evaluated horrifies me and breaks my heart. I don't know if this has been the case. Like, I feel like there was maybe some kind of like vibe of competitiveness, like when I was in high school and college, and maybe I just like wasn't as aware of it. Maybe I'm not sure. So I'm not sure if it's just, I was personally immune and it's always been there or if it's been a change over time, but whatever the case is, it horrifies me and breaks my heart to hear how people think that like their grades can define themselves and they catastrophize over um grades that they get where I'm like a 93 is a good grade that is okay um and having to have like explain that to people like so based on how I hear people just like talk about their grades and talk about like their self-worth is tied to their grades I tell this story about organic chemistry. Um, like I mentioned, so I was a psych and pre-med kind of like double major, um, took organic chemistry or started taking organic chemistry. And there is something about the class where it requires you to like in your head, like spin around these molecules and have all very like good like spiral and like all these things. Right. And I don't know what it is. It just, did not click in my brain. I have tried, I tried harder at that than I think I've ever tried at anything in my life. And it just did not work. So I got grades on these exams that could generously only be described as below freezing. It was not good. (laughs) It was not good. The professor for this class going on one of like my bad teacher rants, the professor for this class thought it was appropriate to, on the day that like we got back our exams to tell the class, okay, here was the average, here's this. He also thought it would be appropriate to announce to the entire auditorium, the lowest grade in the class. Who do you think got that lowest grade? So I tell students that story and I ask them questions like, how do you think that made me feel? And they're like, that probably made you feel awful. And I'm like, yes, yes, it did. Um, And the reason I tell that story is, and always on the day that I give back exams, is if the number you see is disappointing, shocking, whatever, you come talk to me. You come talk to our TAs. We are not going to make you feel that way. We want to help you. You just have to ask for it, right? Um, And I think that's really important to encourage kind of help-seeking behavior in that way. And also, number two, provide students with a very clear and present example that, thank God, I withdrew from the class. They approved my petition like at the last minute, but nearly flunked out of class and I'm still here. I'm doing fine. Um, So to illustrate that just because one thing goes poorly for you, that is okay. And it doesn't need to define your entire life. And I think those are things um, that are important to hear. And research also tells us that when students hear stories of scientists struggling in their lives, they feel more connected to 
for those scientists and then do better in science anyway. Um, so lots of reasons I tell that story, but I hope it has benefits for um, people's mental health in some capacity. I always have people come into office hours. I've had a couple people come and being like, I love that story so much because guess what? I'm failing organic chem. And I was like, not good, but I was like, I have chocolate in my office. I'm like, here, let's, let's have some chocolate. Let's talk. Um, so I think telling stories like that um, and acknowledging that, you know, we can be really successful now, but have had a hard time previously. And that's okay. And telling those stories. I want to be a psychiatrist because mental health is important. Mm. I don't need to be a psychiatrist and go to medical school like that badly. I love psychology. Let me do just that. Mm -hmm. um, so then I found a research position my junior year in a social neuroscience lab um, and worked as a research assistant my junior year, did a honors thesis my senior year, and then applied to grad school and got into USC. And here I am. And here I am. So I guess like also like that, the path of like applying to grad schools and stuff too, like how would you describe that? Um, and then uh, also like, yeah, going back to the question about like shifts that you've seen in this in sure, grad school. Sure. Yeah. So graduate school is an umbrella term. So I have to make sure and be specific that everything I'm saying just applies to PhD programs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there are master's programs, there are JDs, MDs, et cetera. I'm just talking about grad school as it pertains to PhDs in psychology. So your mileage may vary. Um, but that being said, the way that application process, the application process for PhD programs works is very, very different, regardless of the field. It's very different than how you apply to college. So when people apply to college, they think of, in my case, it was, I really want to live in New York. I love New York. I want to go there. The school seems great. They are socially justice, um, is that a word? Social justice minded, socially oriented, right? Um, and I was like, yeah, that's great. That's good. Um, when it comes to a PhD program, it's much less of you applying to the school or where you want to live and the community and the personality and whatever. It's much more that you are applying to work with a single person who is going to become your PhD advisor. Mm, okay. So you have to make sure that um, whatever research interests you have, that's something you have to settle on before you decide you want to go to PhD school is what kind of research do I want to do? What interests me? What can I see myself doing for the next five to six years, right? You have to have that question answered very, very, very clearly for yourself. And then in your application process, seek out people who do that similar kind of work, who could advise you for the next five to six years. And you apply to the schools where they are faculty. Um, so one shift I have noticed is that it has become over time seemingly like much, much more difficult to get into PhD programs than it was in the past. So it was already difficult. Um, I was fortunate enough um, to get into USC straight out of undergrad. That is something that you can do and I feel like is not very widely talked about or widely known. Some people think that you have to get like a separate master's and then do your PhD. You don't have to. You don't have to. You can apply straight out of undergrad. Um, I'm getting the sense that that is, it's a lot rarer for people to get in now that way just because it's so competitive. Um, so what I've noticed and what I recommend people doing if they decide they either want to or need to take some time in between um, graduating college 
college and doing a PhD is spend that time working as a professional research assistant. They go by different names. You can be called a project specialist, project manager, whatever. Mm. Work in a lab in some capacity for a couple of years. Um, And the good thing is those very specific positions, like lab manager positions, are meant to be one to two year gigs for the people who are going to apply to PhD school directly after. It's meant to serve as a jumping off point. Um, So if anybody is looking to like beef up their application or just needs to take time off, whatever reason, that's my recommendation that you go get one of those jobs. That's going to be much more valuable in terms of making your application more competitive than doing like a separate master's degree. That's not going to get you anything. And you also have to pay tuition for a master's. One other thing, This is something that I've realized is surprising to a lot of people, so I try to say it all the time. PhDs are free. You pay zero tuition and you get a paycheck on top of that. Um, So one of the reasons why it's so competitive to get in is because it's a job that you have for five years. You have five years worth of a guaranteed salary. Um, It's not as much as if someone goes and works for like Goldman Sachs, like at 22 years old, like it's not that kind of money but it's a salary. And like, I lived in Los Angeles, like just fine. Like it was a good life. Um, so that being said, do not go pay is the recommendation. I have to give. Do not go pay for a separate master's. If your hope is to get into a PhD program, that's not going to help you. And it is prohibitively expensive. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people also just don't know that you're like a PhD is also like a job. It's, it's basically, it there's so many people out there who don't even like have never like really thought about that also because they're in the moment right now going through college and like they're like eventually maybe I'll want to do this they don't really think about that as being part of their career they think about that as being part of it is part of their education but it also is like the beginning of your career too absolutely that was really really good framing yeah um because you start off, so obviously you're still, because you're in school, you're called PhD students, but as you like progress through your career, you're less of a, or progress through your time in school, you're less of a student and more of kind of like a colleague and like a member of the um, professional discipline in your professional societies. And that's kind of how you evolve over time. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That was really interesting hearing um, about your path and kind of how, and also the shift that you saw. Because yeah, I've definitely heard that from a lot of like peers that getting into these programs has just become significantly harder from what like their parents were going through and things like that. So that definitely like, Mm -hmm. definitely I can relate to that. Um, And then you were, you also said that you could talk like kind of in a broad way of like what you've observed being in academia and how mental health affects academics as well. And then from there too, kind of talking about how you perceive mental health with students and if that is something you see as, a common like uh your your thought process is it common among academics or is yours a different outlook yeah so there's tons and tons of data on this so we know that college students relative to other other age groups and other cohorts are at a much higher risk for any number of mental illnesses um relative to people who might be older people who might be younger there was data that came out i believe it was just this morning um or at least I saw it this morning, the data might be like a day old, Um, but data from the CDC telling us that over the course of the, over the course of the pandemic, one in four people ages 18 to 24 have seriously contemplated suicide. Um, I've seen, I've actually like, I've been reading about that too. I've seen it's increased significantly. Yeah. 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 Um, And one of the, one of the, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of layers, but one of the reasons for that is 
because if you think about what's happening with our current situation is it has so many different pieces to be like the perfect storm to trigger a bunch of different mental health conditions that people either might have been working with in the past and they're kind of in remission. It might trigger a new episode. It might bring things to light that maybe they've never dealt with before. Um, but like isolation, for example, we know is not good for mental health in any capacity, mm-hmm. um, much less, much less if people are social beings like that. Right. Um, we know that, um, I teach this in my class. We know that um, the current situation can be really difficult for people who are struggling with eating disorders, right? Because everyone is talking about the, what do they call it? The the COVID-19 in terms of like the 19 pounds that they're gaining and making all of these jokes. And we're talking about hoarding food and stockpiling food. And honestly, like my meals, I'm stoked. Like what else do I have to look forward to? I'm stoked for my meals, right? So food has become such a, but then it's also like the reverse of that where people are like saying they're being so productive during this time. That's also really unhealthy with social media, seeing how people are like working out all the time, keeping up with their daily life when it's okay to not be okay in this time. Yeah. And that's another thing, um, kind of hopping back to a previous question, um, to end again, so much easy, so much easier said than done. And I don't, I really, I'm sorry if I sound flip, but to the extent to whatever people are able to try and not compare themselves to what they see on the internet, that can take you so far. Um, yeah. The, inter- the internet is not real life. By and large, people are going to post the things that make them look good, that present themselves in a positive light, like those kinds of things, right? Um, so keeping, I mean, keeping in mind that that's, like it's a selection bias. That's what you're going to see. Um, and I think it's great that we see people often posting um, posting about difficulties that they're having or saying, hey, this is what this is. Like, my, I'm not going to show you my house. It's so messy. But like, this is what my house looks like. Like, it's a mess right now because yeah. we're just getting through our days. And that is okay. And that is enough, right? Yeah, right now, that is enough. And I've done a lot of research and like a big part of um, I've just seen like people who are going through depression, something that's helped them significantly is gratitude, being able to acknowledge things that you do have really great in your life currently. And the reason we aren't able to do that though, is because of the comparisons and because of like constantly seeing ourselves through other people's lenses when yeah. it's not that way. Yes. Yeah. And I think another thing I've, I've just got my platitudes, I think another one, and this relates to how academic, how I've seen many academics think of themselves and it can explain a lot is that other people's successes are not your failures. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then I guess like one of my other questions. So I was wondering like how you view mental health with students. And then also if you think the other academics that you've been around, maybe at USC, maybe even as a student, how you saw them viewing mental health within students. Yeah. There's a common, there's a common refrain among a certain kind of professor where they'll say something like, I'm not a therapist, right? Um, Whether they're a psychologist or not. So um, to, to be clear, I have a PhD in psychology, but I'm not a clinician. So quite literally, I am, I am not a therapist, right? Um, That being said, what I've found is that when people use that phrase and kind of fall back on that line, they're using it as a way to absolve themselves of any kind of empathy versus acknowledging their professional limitations. 
right? They're using, I'm not a therapist as an easy way to say, I don't care. I shouldn't care. Don't make me care, right? You don't need to have, I don't need to have clinical training to care about my students as people, right? Um, I think part of, so I'm big on the fact that like being, being a good teacher, I think honestly comes out, comes down to two things. It comes down to knowing, knowing your stuff and being a happily decent person and caring about your, your students as people. And it is heartbreaking to me just how far the caring for your students as people can get you. Um, because people will say that like they appreciate, I don't want to like pat myself on the back, but they'll say that I appreciate everything that I do, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just like, this is the bare minimum. I could not imagine doing anything less. And yet people do. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, I can make this more concrete. So for example, um, if someone were to say like, I'm I'm not a therapist, that might be, that might mean stop talking, leave my office, that kind of thing. Right. If I were to say, I do have to say the line and I have to tell people before you keep talking, I do have to let you know. I don't have clinical training. And even if I did, this is important, even if I did and I were still your professor, this would not be an appropriate boundary to cross, even when people do. But that being said, let's go take a, back in the before times, let's go take a walk over to the counseling center. Let me walk you over. Um, And one of my favorite things, talking about teaching as a privilege, one of my favorite things on earth to do, not favorite let me, let me be careful with my words. I don't like that this needs to needs to happen. Um, but given that it needs to happen, I'll do it. Um, is walking a student over to the counseling center, marching up to the front desk, introducing myself as doctor and saying, this is one of my students. They need to see someone right now. And they see someone within 20 minutes. That's like perfect leading into my next question. I was working on this project with a senior that was in my club and she was trying to figure out ways that we can integrate more mental health awareness within classes. So she was kind of approaching the student government to see what she could do. So within that, we were getting a lot of data by like interviewing students and seeing like what they thought about what USC is currently doing for mental health. And obviously we know um, that uh, they put all these resources at the back of every syllabus. Like that's just a very common thing and that can be useful, but I also see that as just becoming so customary that it's just people don't use it anymore. So like what can people do to push that further to actually make it seem like they do have resources rather than just being a name on a piece of paper? Right, right. Um, So a couple things about that. So it is a required thing. You do, faculty are required to have that information on our syllabus. Um, Not to be like, I was doing it before it was cool, but I was doing it before it was cool. And I think why that's important to say, because this gets at your question rather than just me like patting myself on the back, but when people, and I think students can very easily tell that when their professors, again, genuinely care about them as people, they're the ones that they can come to, right? Um, And again, using come to in very broad terms, come to and say, I'm having trouble keeping up with the class can can you help me with that, right? Or can you walk me to the counseling center? Like those kinds of things rather than let me be your therapist, right? Because that's that's not appropriate and can't happen. But that they're the people that they can come to and not be and not be judged and not feel like they're going to be made fun of because they're struggling, like that kind of thing, right? Um, so 
obviously, again, that information needs to be in the syllabus. And I think there's good reason for it to be there. But on top of that, like it's not enough just to list those resources. Um, and that's crucial knowledge to have. Talking about teaching as an act of service, mm-hmm. the folks at, I don't know if you know, Campus Support and Intervention. Yes. Their office. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I make so many referrals to that office. They know me by name. I send so many students there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get the impression that when I make those referrals, students, and then I'll be second semester seniors have had no idea that this was even an office that exists, much less what they can do for you. Mm -hmm. Um, For those who aren't aware, it's like a case management kind of office where if you're facing any kind of difficulty, they can connect you with the appropriate offices. It's that kind of thing. Um, So that being said, given the fact that so many people just aren't aware of these resources, um, Basically, there are, there are a lot of layers. Um, just because they are listed in the syllabus, which again is required, doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to read it, much less be aware of them. Um, so something that I do on my, um, on my first day of classes, or at least during the before times, is, you know, usually the first day of class is syllabus day, right? Um, so obviously it is syllabus day to a certain extent, but I also make sure, very sure, to highlight these specific campus resources and let people know out loud using my voice. You can find these on the syllabus as you will with any syllabus, but here is what they do for you and walking them through that process. Um, Saying things, I'm on a roll now, saying things not just like here's campus support and intervention, here's what they do, but also here's DSP. I feel like everyone generally knows what DSP is, But um, the first time I taught abnormal psych here, this was new information to like the entire auditorium. So now I say it all the time and it's in my syllabus now, is that mental illnesses are eligible under the Americans with Disabilities Act for reasonable academic accommodations. You can get accommodated if you have depression that impairs your ability to keep up with your academic progress. If you have anxiety, anything where it's again, it's not my job to determine, it's DSP's job to determine. But those conditions count. They're not excluded in any capacity just by virtue of the fact that they are mental illnesses. Um, so I think that's important for people to know as well. And I say that loud now on the first day of every class. So tough friend. Really important. I, I think that like also just with the stigma that does come with anxiety, just because also a lot of people use that word as kind of to describe stress rather than like what it actually is. Yeah. It's good to like have that reference. And I really wish a lot of professors knew that that actually does signify that is like a disability and it can be taken into consideration when you're doing mm-hmm. your work. And I, I've like had in my own experience, like with um, my own personal, like anxiety, like I've had um, teachers who are very understanding, but then there's also people who just, they don't really, um, they're not understanding. So I guess like having that other level of going to DSP can really help. A lot of students if that is something that's prohibiting them from completing the work that they can yeah. do. Highly recommended while we're on this topic, if you have a DSP letter, you are legally accommodated. You are legally entitled to those rights. If a professor chooses not to be understanding after you've given them a letter, that's a legal problem. Oh really? Okay. Oh, really? Good to know. Yeah. oh yeah. Definitely good to know. And this is something I've realized um, in me, this now I'm going to be starting my, what is this third year as a faculty member mm-hmm. is something I've noticed that is honestly like surprising to me. It's so much easier to be kind 
than it is just to institute rules for like rules sake or authority sake. The thing is, um, at least, and I can't speak to other schools, but like, at least in my department, that's not like a departmental policy. Like I can make the choice to do things or not do things. So when people do that, that means that they personally have decided that is a good and valuable and thing to do. Um, and they could just as easily choose not to do that. I had one of my tweets. I think this is my biggest tweet to date. Um, a couple months ago, I was in a fact of the university wide faculty meeting over zoom. Um, and it was like a town hall kind of thing asking about how are we going to, um, just adapt to online learning, all of these things. And then someone, I thank God, it was like webinar style and you couldn't see my face on camera, thank God. <laughs> um, but someone asked, and I tweeted about it immediately, someone asked, how do we work to ensure, um, what was the phrasing I used? It was basically like, how do we make sure that our students aren't lying about getting COVID to get out of responsibilities? How do we promote personal responsibility? That's what it was. How do we promote personal responsibility um, in the time in the time of this pandemic? How do we know that they're not lying to us? And Are we jumping to that to be something? As right, if that is what, if like, given everything that is happening, if that is what you're worrying about right now, I have so many questions. Um, so I tweeted about it. It was the biggest one to date. I had students emailing me screenshots of my own tweet being like, you're my hero. And I'm like, okay, my ego doesn't need that, but thank you. Um, <laughs> but it, re it resonated with so many people in so many ways. And the um, the, all the replies under that tweet were people telling stories of, and years, decades later, this goes to show, people remember how you treat them. So there were people who are even professors now who were like, when I was in school, I had a family member die, something happened, and someone didn't respond with kindness, and I remember them, I remember their name, I remember the story, and I'm going to tell you about it right now. Yeah. Um, so I think that is another getting back to just like teaching as an act of service is people may or may, like, I hope they do, they may or may not remember the material that you taught them, but they're absolutely going to remember how you treated them. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, pro we do like process emotions in like a more just sentimental way than what we do when we're like learning from factual experience. So I think that's, yeah, that's very valid. Um, moving on from like talking about your career to kind of talking about how quarantine um, has been for you. And then also, I guess we can also talk about like the scientifically about how quarantine affects mental health. Yeah, sure. So I've had, I've had tons of things to keep me busy. Um, so I taught, um, so obviously the spring semester ended, right? And then I had some time. I taught a summer class that just ended this week. And then the fall semester starts, mm -hmm. God, Monday. Um, so I've had plenty to keep me busy and I feel like being kept, this can go either way. Um, but for some people, your mileage may vary, but for some people, I feel like having things to do and having things that keep them occupied can be good for some people. Um, so I've had, I had no shortage of things to keep me busy. Um, kind of hinted at this before, but basically so many things that our current moment is currently presenting with us are like the perfect storm of triggers, right? So whether it's uncertainty, um, we know that anyone with anxiety, especially generalized anxiety disorder, um, does not tolerate uncertainty well. Um, in general, 
having all of this on top of it is not a good mix, right? We know that isolation in general um, is not really good for anybody, right? Especially if you have depression, right? So, so many different things that, again, are not good in general, and then especially burdensome for people who might have pre-existing conditions. So that being said, um, I think it's an important thing for everyone to keep in mind. And again, I feel like I can't give this disclaimer enough, so much easier said than done but it needs to be said. Um, so to the extent, if you know, and being self-aware is important, if you know that isolation is not good for you and you need to have some kind of contact, right? Have a movie night, have it scheduled, have a movie night, a Zoom movie night with your friends every Saturday, right? Have it with a different group of friends every Sunday, do whatever you need to do um, and keep yourself, all of you work together to keep yourselves accountable for holding yourselves to that, right? Um, Finding some kind of routine can also be helpful, something that you maybe like look forward to in your day that is, again, obviously like safe to do. Mm -hmm. um, but whether it's like at home yoga classes, whether it's exercising outdoors far away from people, something that you can do um, that is good for you and that you look forward to um, can be, can be great. I went to, this was several months back before I started teaching my summer class. Um, but I went to, um, my favorite beaches in Malibu, it's point doom. And I went up to Malibu. This was before the, um, this was back when, when was it? It was back when they still had the parking lots closed for beaches. So it was dead empty and super safe. Mm -hmm. And I went there and I was like, Oh my God, like, I feel so happy. Like, this is incredible. Like I wasn't like necessarily unhappy, yeah. but it's just being stuck in your house and just doing things. It's like a monotony. Right. Mm -hmm. And I went to the beach. And I was like, this is, this is amazing. This is amazing. Like I forgot, like, this is awesome. Right. So again, can't emphasize it enough to the extent that you are keeping yourself safe and not putting other people at risk, find something you can do to look forward to. Um, I think even yeah. the whole idea of change in environment is a big thing too. Going for a walk or like outside of your house, like something like that, just really simple because I've heard about this before where if you're like studying or if you're thinking about something and you can't get the right words, go walk mm -hmm. into another room, a different room, and that helps kind of change your mindset. I don't like, I don't know the same scientific reasoning behind that, but it definitely helps me when I'm writing papers and things like that. So that really makes sense when we're thinking about like the larger scheme of just being quarantined with COVID. It can really make you have a different perspective and maybe it can also help you think about things in a different way to benefit you. Yeah. yeah. Just finding any kind of way to give yourself a break to break up the monotony that you've previously been experiencing um, to the extent, again, that you are able and that you can keep yourself and other safe in doing so. Um, cannot recommend it enough. Yeah. And then I guess we've talked about quarantine, but like during quarantine, there's been a lot that's happened with the Black Lives Matter movement. And you said you were very interested in social justice and that was something you were looking for when you went to NYU. Um, and in my psych class that I did take, they had mentioned how racism, exclusion, discrimination, like how they affect the mental health of people of color. Um, so like, can you go into I don't know if you have done research or if you just know how this affects people's mental health. Also, I guess like we can also talk about like resources in a little bit, but uh, do you have any knowledge on that? And um, yeah, so, yeah. So 
super quick and super simple. Racism is not good for your mental health. Feel, feeling like, and I feel like there's not much more, I'm so sorry to be like flip, but there's not much more to it than feeling like you are and being made to feel interpersonally, structurally on every level that you are less than other people and then having your life affected in myriad number of ways by the belief that other people think you're less than, that's not that's not good for, any, for anyone, right? Um, and to see trauma upon trauma upon trauma reproduced on like social media, for example, um, to see videos of people getting like killed by police, for example, um, to see videos um, and photos of people like dying at the border, right? Especially, and I cannot emphasize this enough, especially if you are a member of that group, that can be incredibly traumatizing to see that over and over and over and be reminded of that. Um, I see people who I suppose mean well, I can't stand this, but I suppose they mean well, um, but posting pictures of people in their literal last moments, like being murdered, right? To raise awareness, don't look away, that kind of thing. Um, and it's one of those things, like my take is, okay, mail that, like print the picture out and mail it to your relatives who need to see that. Don't put that out. To also watch that content if that's not what they want to be seeing right now. Right. And I think just the fact that it's so, it says so much, the fact that some of that content is so easy for people to share, Mm -hmm. um, I think speaks to the fact of the fact that it's really easy for certain people to dehumanize other groups without even thinking that they are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so like some people can share those videos and be like, we need to raise awareness, this is bad, but not get that pit in their stomach and come to the realization that this was a person's like last moments, like that was someone's family member. They had a, like that, that, like, do you see, do you see where I'm going with yes, this? Right? Exactly. Yeah. The fact that it's so easy for some people to share videos like that, I think speaks to the speaks to the broader point that even if they mean well, they're seeing this group as less as less than people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that facilitates that. Um, it's also like the easy way to feel like, like you're doing something too, yeah. rather than taking action. Like that's a huge thing that I've been seeing on social media too. Is people who never have discussed this topic, never were interested in this, started. They would be posting things about the regular life and then to like combat that would just post like one thing about like the movement. Can we talk about the black squares on Instagram? Yes. <laughs> so I don't have any I don't have anything to say other than than just scoff. But yeah, I think performative allyship is obviously is is not great. Um, it makes people feel like they're doing something, they can pat themselves on the back, but are really not doing anything tangible to help anybody exactly and they're not even also they're not even trying to learn where this is coming from too they're just trying to like understand it in the moment of what's happening right now and they i think that's also very problematic when people think about um the oppression of black people in our country they don't they're just thinking about it as right now and they aren't thinking about how over all of this time so much has happened that we don't even, we're not even educated about, that prevents, like, which kind of, like, makes the whole education system, too, very wrong in many ways. But people just don't want to see this as a systematic problem. So Right. Yeah, Yeah, I feel far too often people 
um, think of racism as one person being mean to another person um, of a different race. And I don't know whether they got that in elementary school, middle, wherever they got that from. Too many people have that idea. Um, and it does an immense disservice and an immense injustice to eradicating racism in whatever way we can. If people don't literally don't know what racism is, that's a problem in and of itself that needs to be fixed if people don't understand it um, as a structural issue that didn't just pop out of pop up pop up out of nowhere. Yeah, definitely. Um, then kind of talking about resources too, just like to point out like there's obviously within communities that are less fortunate in socioeconomic ways or also um, in terms of different bodies that are mostly people of color, like there is a disparity in the lack of resources that they are provided. And that just continues the process. So I guess I'm wondering if you know of any specific resources that could be helpful to people listening to this podcast. It could be in relation to this, but also everything we've talked about as well. Ooh, yeah. Um, so a couple, couple different points to hit. So I do know that there are, and I share these with my students, there are a number of different like mental health hotlines that people can call that are meant to be not any kind of like long-term solution, but if you need someone to talk to right now, um, are 24-7, there are trained volunteers on the other side of the line. That being said, all of those different kinds of hotlines have been inundated to say the least over the past several months because everyone's having a tough time, right? Yeah. Uh, so those are going to give the disclaimer, those are resources that exist and are available, um, but are in much higher demand, obviously. Um, they are completely free, accessible at any time of day. Um, what I can say is for those who are specifically interested in um, mental health, like becoming a practitioner, becoming a clinician, anything like that, um, you can become one of those volunteers. You don't need a PhD to be on the other end of one of those hotlines. You just need to go through the training that they give you um, and they give everyone. Um, so if anyone is interested in mental health and looking to help other people and get involved, right now is the perfect time, if any, to go be a counselor on for one of those text lines because such high demand. Um, but those are resources that are available. One thing that I, um, or sorry, before I get there, in addition to like crisis text hotlines, if anyone is looking for like a long-term kind of like therapist, one thing to look for, especially if um, accessibility, like economic accessibility is an issue, which separate conversation, don't even get me started. But there are therapists who offer um, what we call sliding scales, meaning um, you pay as much as you are able, depending on your income, right? So if you make um, significantly less money than someone else they're seeing, you're going to pay less for the services. Those are slide. available in um, LA and the LA area? Oh, so it's just a general thing. So if oh. you're searching, if you're just like searching for a therapist, look for the words sliding scale. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. Um, on that note, here was my segue that I kind of wanted to do earlier, but so on the topic, especially of looking for therapists, especially if, um, any kind of racial trauma is a component of what you're seeking help for. Very, very important to keep in mind that, um, you need to be able to find a person who is able to talk about that and to talk about it well. Um, so for example, in different, so cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is a really 
is a really popular treatment for anxiety, depression, et cetera. It's a very common form of therapy. One of the hallmarks of cognitive behavioral therapy is helping people reframe their thoughts, think about things differently, right? See things in a different light, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, those little tips and tricks, those are not going to work. You can't reframe your way out of structural racism. Um, and if someone tried to tell me that, like, I would lose my mind at them um, because that's not that's not what you do. That's not how that's going to work, right? Um, there was a Twitter thread that went for racism in some sort. Right, right. Um, there was a Twitter thread that went viral a couple of weeks, what is time? I think it was a couple of weeks ago, um, where it was a black woman specifically saying that she finally used um, the hotline that she had at work to be able to find a therapist that would um, that would be covered by her insurance. She finally set, she finally found someone. And the way that this therapy um, process went during their first meeting is the black woman, the client was talking about racism and how she felt and how she was dealing with all of this. And the therapist response was to cry because she didn't know that racism was that bad or that it existed to that extent. So therapists do get tons of training, but therapists are also people, right? So it's very, very possible for um, a therapist to do something that is not good to give bad advice. It's, Especially if um, they are not teaching with, or not teaching, especially if they're not practicing with any kind of level of just like race consciousness in general, right? Um, So if that is someone is looking for a therapist who specifically, um, or they're dealing with issues very specific to racism, very specific to really anything, racism, transphobia, um, disability justice, whatever, right? Finding someone who is very able to talk about those things is very, very important. Yes. Okay. And there's a great, I can email this to you afterwards, but Teen Vogue is doing the Lord's work over the past few years with just their coverage of just like everything. They have an incredible resource um, for people I can email to you after for how to find a therapist that understands oppression and intersectionality and is not going to do those things. So how to find someone like that. I can send it to you. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. For the, all those resources. Um, definitely. We will be putting a link to like a bunch of things that you've talked about um, the resources on our social media accounts and um, I really want to thank you for being here today. And I just want to ask you one last question. If you have any advice to leave us with. I will. Yeah. I will leave people with this because it's something I think I say very often and I can't say enough. Your work is just something you happen to do. It is not who you are as a person. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking with us. We might reach out again if we ever have questions, if that's okay with you as well. But good luck with uh, the rest of organizing your classes and the new school year coming up. Oh my God. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Yeah. It was great to talk to you. You too. Well, that was really great. I really enjoyed talking with that professor, especially since she was able to provide a lot of relatable content and talking from her own experience, as well as also talking about things that she might not have actually been comfortable talking about because it also was related to the institution she works for. But that's what we need. We need we need transparency and we need to be talking about these issues. And I do really appreciate where she was coming from. And I think I would even recommend just from what I was able to talk with her, and I haven't taken any of her classes, but I would recommend looking into taking some of her classes because she not only says that she 
cares about you as a student and she wants you to learn as much as possible, but she also really does care about helping people succeed. So that is something that I don't see in a lot of professors. I've definitely come by a few that have really cared about the success of their students, but it's rare. It's, it can be very rare. So um, take that into consideration. Maybe you can see if you're interested in her psych 100 class or her abnormal psych um, class. So yeah, since the podcast is kind of coming to an end, this is our first podcast. I definitely want to give a bunch of thank yous to people who have been involved. So major thanks to our speaker today, um, Professor Brinston, um, as well as the rest of our podcast team that you guys haven't been able to see today. Amani was on the call, um, just kind of listening in. She's our speaker coordinator, and she made this all possible, reaching out, and she's continuing to reach out to so many resources. So it's really great to have her on the team. She's doing a fantastic job. We also have on our team our marketing coordinator, Joanna, who is also going to be um, the co-host. She is doing a great job as well, um, kind of creating our social media accounts, reaching out to different resources to see where we can kind of broaden our audience so that we can actually help a lot more people and hopefully provide honest uh, answers to their questions about mental health. Additionally, on top of that, we also have our information coordinator and resource um, creator, Linnell. Her job and role is just kind of putting together the resources that the speakers mention or I mention in this, and then kind of having that on like an actual document. So we will be publishing uh, that on our social media um, coming up soon. And then finally, I would like to thank MOVE, the organization that is taking a part of this initiative. They have been a great support. They have been really helpful in terms of providing resources as well as providing people who are interested in the project and who are willing to take that leap and help us. So thank you so much to the club. And then also just kind of want to plug our social media. So right now we have our Instagram account up and running. So we're just getting that started, but it's at um, honesty, our podcast underscore. So honesty, our podcast underscore. So with that last note, um, I just want to say I'm really excited to get the ball rolling on this podcast and just cannot wait to be able to see the growth of who we're able to also communicate with, but also who we're able to reach with this podcast. So thank you so much for tuning in. Fight on and fight on together. It's not a game. It's a red